We are in Matthew chapter 5 as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, and in a moment, we will study Matthew 5, 38 through 48. Jesus speaks to his disciples, those who were listening, and the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew's documentation of this perfect sermon from the one perfect preacher for us to read and study and use in our lives today. I want to emphasize Jesus isn't taking any issue with the law of God in the Old Testament. <clears throat> he speaks to the people about what they had heard with emphasis on God's will in a deeper way than teachings and interpretations advanced by the religious leaders they had been listening to. He exposes the inadequacy and shallowness of what he calls in verse 20, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Real righteousness begins in the heart. We see that over and over in these three chapters. So here's something else the people had heard. Jesus wanted to talk to them about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let's read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, and take your tunic, let him also have your cloak. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All right. The old law, back in the Old Testament, did say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But that statement was a small part of a larger section of judicial law God gave for the Jewish nation before Christ. This was never intended to be permission for personal vengeance or taking matters of punishment into your own hands in some extreme way. Now, the law said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. In Exodus 21, 23 to 25, but if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Similar to that in Leviticus 24, 19 and 20. And if a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Same thing in Deuteronomy 19.21, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So the old law 
We're talking about back in the Old Testament, the law God gave through Moses for the Jewish nation. Taught this. But when you study those statements in the context of the overall Mosaic law and the Mosaic law's judicial system, you discover a couple of things you need to know about this. One, this provision was not given to individuals as an instrument for personal vendettas. I think some people have the impression that under Old Testament law, if your neighbor came to your house and chopped off your hand, you had a right to go directly to that person's house and do the same to them. No. This provision in the old law was not given to individuals as an instrument for personal vendettas. The law was to be discharged through officials, the judiciary system. It was a statute for the civil government to administer, not individual victims. Rather, judges, officials had this duty. Number two, this prescription of punishment was actually restrictive, not permissive or open-ended. Suppose someone cuts off my hand, and I am so angered and resentful, I want to go to the court and have the court chop off their hand and their head and one of their legs. No. This provision of Mosaic civil law restricted the punishment to the extent of the initial act of violence. So it was designed to restrain reprisals and punishments to the kind or degree of injury inflicted. So when you read this about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, Old Testament law had this provision but it was designed for the judiciary system, not individual victims, and it was restrictive in nature. Well, by Jesus' time, the scribes and Pharisees had turned this into permission for personal retaliation. They so perverted and misapplied this, they made it into a license for rough justice. But Instead of this rough justice, Jesus taught forbearance, and he renounced revenge. That's what he's doing here. And he uses a series of statements here to advance the virtue of patience and justice and equality under the law. So he says, resist not him that is evil. That's not a blanket statement to be applied out there in the world to everything by everybody. He is not saying never do anything against evil. Of course not. What Jesus is concerned about here is we should never resist evil with evil. It is exactly what Paul wrote in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The idea is don't ever respond to evil or injury in kind. 
The idea in this context is whatever we do in response to evil must be done with justice and love, not personal anger and vengeance. Now, some detail here. Jesus gives four very dramatic illustrations of what he's teaching, and we must not turn these isolated illustrations into absolutes and limit them to the situations described. These are illustrations of what he was teaching. There are four. The first concerns a sharp backhand slap to the cheek, which was a gross insult. The follower of Jesus is to be prepared to take another slap rather than to suddenly retaliate. Now, this doesn't lay down an absolute for application only in this exact situation. This illustrates an attitude. That's what he's doing. And the attitude is refraining from sudden violent retaliation. The second example concerns a lawsuit in which a man is likely to lose his tunic, a long garment which corresponds to a modern uh, dress or suit of clothes. The follower of Jesus will throw in the outer coat as well when confronted with this. Now, you may read this and you may say, well, if I ever get involved in a lawsuit over clothing, I guess then I'll follow this. No, you're missing the point of this. I don't believe Jesus is laying down absolutes for application only in the situations described. He is answering a vengeful attitude by laying down the better attitude. So let me take you here. The vengeful attitude is reacting with sudden revenge. Violent retaliation, I'll get him, entering into litigation with the warlike intent to subjugate your enemy and make him pay. Pay may even uh, uh, more than uh, what uh, the crime was. The better attitude is, even if I have to give something up, I refuse to get involved in endless retaliation. It is better to give up something than to spend all your time in court fighting battles, trying to get even, and especially when there's very little at stake. See, these are illustrations designed to instruct us in attitude concerning the core values of justice and patience and forbearance and avoiding sudden impulses of revenge. The third example probably refers to the Roman practice of commandeering civilians, similar to the draft or martial law. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. An ordinary Roman soldier could legally commandeer a civilian to help him, for example, to carry his luggage for a prescribed distance. Jesus' followers are not to respond with violent irritation and resistance in such cases it would be better to double the distance and accept the imposition cheerfully. Jesus' last example demands giving and lending that is cheerful and willing. The issue here is not the wisdom or foolishness of lending money to everyone who comes along. Other passages deal with that 
in Proverbs 11, 15, 17, 18, 22, 26, and in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10. The burden of this passage is the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth Pharisee mentality would tend to resist generosity and benevolence in general. In cases where it is appropriate to help someone and you have the ability, your attitude shouldn't be, what's in this for me? What can I get out of this? And if he doesn't pay, I'll take care of him in court. Jesus instead is recommending generosity and unselfishness in contrast to the legalistic, pharisaic mentality that often led to revenge and violence. So in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, there are four illustrations which are not intended to tell us exactly how to act only in those situations. Jesus is teaching against one attitude and for another. The vengeful attitude is reacting with sudden and violent revenge, entering into litigation with warlike intent uh, to subjugate an enemy and the tight-fisted mercenary spirit. The better attitude is, even if I have to give up something, I refuse to get involved in endless retaliation. It is better to give up something than to spend all your time in court under agony, fighting battles, trying to get even, especially when there is very little at stake. We should never resist evil with evil. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Matthew chapter 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's begin by considering what had been taught. Jesus used that phrase again. You have heard that it was said. And indeed, the Old Testament said, the Old Testament said, love your neighbor. Leviticus 19.18, Leviticus 19.34, Exodus 23.4 and 5, Proverbs 25.21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So the Old Testament taught love for your neighbor, love for your enemy. God had instructed the Jews in this love back in the Old Testament. All right, look back at Matthew 5, 43. Remember, this is what had been taught before Jesus came. You shall love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. The Old Testament said to love your neighbor, love your enemy, in fact, love all men. Did the Old Testament say hate your enemy? No. Nowhere in the Old Testament were the people told to hate anybody. We saw in Exodus 23 that I cited earlier, they were told specifically to love their enemies. <clears throat> Likewise, uh, in Proverbs. Here's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They knew what the law said about loving your neighbor. What they did was to work on the definition of neighbor. And they taught the word neighbor is exclusive and cannot be extended beyond the borders of Israel. They taught this. They emphasized their own definition. They put their own selfish spin on those Old Testament passages. And eventually their teaching was, by the time Jesus came, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. In one Jewish monastic community which lived by the Dead Sea, a very common proverb was, love the brothers, hate the outsiders. So here is another case where the Pharisees distorted and misapplied the word of God to serve their own interest, and in this case, to actually teach people to hate. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, this is exactly what was taught back in Exodus 23 in Proverbs. We read a moment ago. But the scribes and Pharisees took the lead in disavowing and distorting that teaching. Jesus, as he often did, went back to God's basic moral law. He doesn't condone the hatred taught by the Pharisees. He restores what the law of God always intended in all dispensations. Love your enemies. Love all men. We need to spend some time talking about this love that Jesus taught, and we might start with the Greek word agape. Agape is not ordinary love as commonly defined and practiced in the world. It is love of a different and higher sort. Agape does not mean just a feeling. Yes, feelings are involved, but it's more than just an emotional state. It is a determination of mind, an attitude of active goodwill toward others, even those who may hurt and injure and disappoint you. It is moral determination that becomes the sustaining force behind the affections, the unselfishness, and compassion that we have toward other human beings. This is the kind of love Jesus taught, and this is the kind of love he demonstrated in his life, and it's the model that we are to follow. It is the love exhibited by the Father and the Son and written by the Holy Spirit. Now, this love identified by the Greek word agape has nothing to do with some attractive or beneficial quality we see in others. <clears throat> Ordinary love, as defined by the world, 
is a response to some attraction because of how someone looks or acts or treats us in a way beneficial to us, and so we love them. But with agape, we have determined to have a certain attitude of goodwill regardless of any attractive quality or desirable trait or benefit that might come to us. So once we have developed this kind of love through our attachment to Christ and our commitment to his teaching, we are able to love even those who hurt us or disappoint us, people who have no attraction offer no benefit to us, but we are determined to love them because it is right. It is right. That's agape. Listen again, verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, nowhere is this attitude more vivid than in Jesus himself, who while suffering the unjust agony of the cross, cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now that's our standard. And in the light of such a standard, it will not do merely to love our friends and let it go at that. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Something else I need to say. It may help to consider what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, love the way your enemies live. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, love their methods and defend their ways. None of that appears in this statement. We're talking about people who may seek to do us harm, but we've already determined we love those people and we will seek what is best for them. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This love, that is able to embrace enemies, that we see in the Father and the Son, written by the Holy Spirit, this love does not originate on earth. Men, even in their most heroic moments, have only managed to love the lovable, Romans 5 and verse 7. God, on the other hand, has consistently loved his enemies, sending rain and sunlight upon both good and evil. So this love, so this love that is impartial <clears throat> does not originate on earth. It comes from God. The gospel plan of salvation is evidence of this impartial love of God for all men. God commendeth his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and verse 8. Now we come to the final verse in Matthew 5. Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this throws some people off. I think one problem is this verse may be quoted entirely separate from the context. 
And when you just quote the verse without the context, it does sound pretty tough. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When you read this without the context, it sounds like an unattainable demand that we be sinless and perfect and absolutely pure and holy like God. Well, it's always good to aim at perfection, but sinless perfection is not the demand of this verse. The context is having a love like the love God has. And that's an impartial love. To return evil for good is of the devil. To return good for good is human. That's ordinary. But to return good for evil, to love your enemy, that's divine. That's loving like God loves. And that must be our standard, and that's what this is about. God loves all men, the just and the unjust. That's a perfect, well-rounded, impartial love. And that's my standard as a citizen in the kingdom of Christ. Instead of distorting scripture and trying to figure out some way to hate my enemy, like the Pharisees, we need to be like God, our Father, as we imitate the fullness and completeness of his love. Next time, we will be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4.